This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We'll begin on page 986 in the Bibles in your rows, if you'd like to follow along as I read. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, with great desire, to see you face to face. But because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, not that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it had come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us to the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in the holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Glory to God. Well, good morning again. Uh, I have the opportunity to uh, introduce to you our, um, our speaker this morning, Pastor Elliot Grudem. Uh, Elliot is a, uh, well, from Chicago uh, originally, but is uh, has ties to the area in that he was a Miami University graduate. He and his wife both graduated from Miami University, and his uh, daughter is a first-year student now at Miami as well, which is a, another reason that we get to, to see him a little bit more uh, these days now that she is there. But um, a few weeks ago, if you were here, uh, we were talking about 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and uh, in there, Paul talks about uh, imitation, right? Finding other people to imitate, right? That, that are maybe a little further than you in the Lord, people you find uh, that are mature, people that you find that have wisdom. And what we said there is, you know, we all need that, right? We, we, we need to find somebody we can ride along with uh, in the faith in order to grow and develop. And Elliot has been that kind of person for me. 
somebody that I could ride along with, somebody that has been open to, uh, to, to letting me be a part of his life in that way and pouring into me. Elliot uh, has been involved in ministry for uh, over two decades now. He uh, has been uh, in our denomination for most of that time and uh, served in ministry in New Orleans, in Orlando, in Seattle, and then was a pastor uh, at a church in Raleigh. But then for the last 10 years, and he's still located in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, by the way, but uh, for the last 10 years, he's been the director of a group called the Leaders Collective. And uh, Leaders Collective aims to resource churches uh, but really also to equip pastors to do ministry for the long haul. Uh, their aim is to help pastors be healthy, uh, churches to be healthy, and, uh, and then to be sustainable in ministry uh, over time. And so I had the opportunity to, to be a part of a Leaders Collective cohort with uh, five other pastors. It was a two-year program and an incredible blessing to my life. And uh, it was a two-year program, but uh, I'm in year six of continuing to meet with those same guys. It's been such a, a fruitful uh, relate, set of relationships for me that we, we just haven't started even, or haven't stopped, even though uh, our time uh, officially in the program has come to an end. Uh, but I'm thrilled to be able to uh, have you all here from Elliot this morning. Uh, he shared with some of our leaders on Friday night and Saturday morning, and then he's going to uh, speak to you this morning. So let's give him a warm welcome. And uh, Elliot, you can come on up. I'll pray for you really quickly. That wasn't the warm welcome I was hoping for. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us this morning. We, um, we love your word. We want to, to grow uh, in our understanding of it, in our application of it, in our own lives. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from Elliot. We pray that you would uh, use him to, uh, to help us both understand and apply your word to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, it's good to be here. Uh, let me just say first, you know, gosh, um, it was great to hear from Eric. And I, if you're thinking about joining his planting team, let me just encourage you, just do it. Just go. Yeah, I can guarantee a couple things if you're part of a planting team. And if you doubt it, ask the guys like Mike that were part of this planting team. You'll get the best stories, I mean the best stories, that you'll remember and laugh about for years. Uh, it's going to be some of the hardest work you'll ever do because you're risking your life on a venture of faith. And along the way, both when it's really hard and when it's really good, you're going to discover that God's with you and that he loves you. And so if you're at all feeling a little bit stagnant in your faith, Man, there's nothing to jumpstart your faith like joining a church plant. So that's my, that's my plug. Go and just and, and see what and see what God does. Okay, uh, Stanley Hauerwas taught at uh, taught theology at Duke for about 20 years and uh, well, well, well respected theology professor. Uh, and uh, he said one he said one of my favorite phrases that he's he's got a bunch of memorable. My favorite phrase is he said uh, that to be a pastor is to risk being nibbled to death by ducks. <laughs> it's a great description. I mean, pastoral ministry in America is usually not being like, you know, usually not like being mauled by a bear, but, but instead a, a never-ending series of, of seemingly harmless bites that, I don't know, eventually take off your arm. I, I started Leaders Collective, as Josh said, 10 years ago 
because I saw and experienced that reality. I saw and experienced the seemingly endless toll ministry took on pastors and families and by extension the churches that they served. I wanted to help pastors thrive and find joy and happiness in doing what God had called them to do because I love and care about them and their families. And I love and care about Jesus' church. And for the last couple of years, you as a church have have partnered with us, helped us do just that. You've helped us, and together we have served Jesus' church, or helped Jesus' church by serving our leaders. We we couldn't do what we do without you all. I mean, together we've, we've helped nearly 200 church planters and pastors and Seeing over 50 churches planted. And our partner with New City means, means, means a ton to me. As Josh said, my wife and I met at Miami, got married following graduation. While we were in school, we attended church in Cincinnati. We briefly overlapped with Josh Kaufman and, and uh, Josh Rotano and, and Brian. Our first date was at Music Hall, so Cincinnati has some, some real meaning to us uh, and significance. We, we love your city thrilled about the ways that you're loving and caring for Cincinnati. And now that my daughter's just down the road, we've got added incentive uh, to come back. Josh has been through our program. Eric is in our program now. And, and New City ranks as one of the top visits for our church planters each and every year. We think that what you're doing as a church, I don't know, maybe we could put it this way. The way that you love your neighbors as you love yourself. We think... It's so good the way you're doing it and so authentic that we want our church pastors as they're trying to figure out how to be a pastor and what their church needs to look like. We want them to be here so they can see it, hear about it, and experience it. And we think the world of your team, we think the world of the culture, the staff and church culture here, I think the world of Josh He's now on our board and has already in a short time made our organization better. The work that we do is based on an $80 million 10-year study on what it takes to keep pastors in ministry over the long haul. And $80 million, 10 years, 60 different organizations, they all came up with the same thing. As long as pastors have deep abiding friendships, Ideally with other pastors, ideally outside their church and even across denominations, they will last in ministry. Over 92% of the pastors we've, and planters we've worked with are, are still in ministry. Over 94% of the churches that we've helped plant are still thriving. And all but one of the pastors we work with is still, even if they're no longer leading a church, still an active member of a church. If you've done any kind of ministry here, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like as we look at Thessalonians. If you've done any type of ministry here, you know that advancing the gospel always comes at a cost, and that's especially felt by pastors. And as we will see this morning, the scriptures tell us that, that while that's normal and, and expected, and though they knew it when they signed up to follow Jesus' call to, to be in a church, and though they do it gladly, it's still hard. And it's not just hard to experience, it's often hard to explain. So one of the things we do is we, we provide a place for pastors to talk about the hard stuff they're facing with fellow pastors and to celebrate the good stuff that's happening with fellow pastors. Those who without a whole lot of context can understand the cost that the ministry is taking 
to their soul. And God's blessing our work. And I mean our in the real sense. Because it's the work of Leaders Collective partnered with the work of New City. And so the Lord is blessing our work to equip, establish pastors and help them lead churches that will last. So thank you. Thanks for your partnership. Thanks for letting me be here. Let me, let me, couldn't do it without you. Let me pray one more time and then we'll look at God's word together. Jesus, we thank you for uh, drawing us together today to look at these wonderful things in your word. And we ask that as we look at them together, uh, you would be present with us in word by your spirit and bring about the change in our hearts that you desire, that we leave here deep, people deeper in love with you and deeper in love with one another. It's in your name, Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen. I don't know if you noticed it, but the, but the section of the scripture from Thessalonians that was read is similar to what was mentioned last week, as Josh mentioned last week as he looked at it. It's, it's kind of a bit personal. I mean, listening to it, you may have felt like you were unintentionally listening in on a, on a one, uh, you know, one-sided Zoom call at, a, at Red Tree or some other local coffee shop. And, and the personal stuff that, that's in there seems a bit different. But it also makes sense. I mean, Paul knew these Thessalonians. He, he planted the church there. He was their pastor. And the church was going well. Filled with both Jewish and non-Jewish or Gentile believers in Jesus. And, and that the church was going well upset some of the rulers in the synagogue in Thessalonica. So much so that they hired some local thugs and they formed a mob and they went out in the city looking for Paul. When it became clear to the church what was happening, that under the, you know, at night there, they, they, they got Paul out of town immediately. No farewell party, no, no goodbyes, be just gone. And those left in the church were, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, afflicted by the mob and the local government. It started that evening and continued, still kind of ongoing when they received Paul's letter. And Paul really loves these people. He, he loves the people at the church in Thessalonica. And he's worried about them. He's really worried about them. He's, he's, he really, really, really wants them to know both of those things. That he loves them and he's worried about them. So he fills this letter, especially the section that was just read, with all this emotional, extravagant language. As I read it, I thought, gosh, Paul, that's maybe a, I get it. Maybe a bit much. Kind of pouring the syrup on a little bit. And then Pastor John Stott helped me understand why the passage we read is written like it is. He writes, pastoral love is parental love. That is its quality. Pastoral love is parental love. In the section that you looked at last week, Paul said his ministry in Thessalonica was both like a mother and a father. And this week he gives expression to that with this pastoral or parental love. But not just parental love, he also mentions parental anxiety. Right? He left suddenly and he's worried about the church and he needs an update. Not knowing him, he says, makes him feel like he's drowning in his anxiety. So he sends his trusted protege, Timothy, to find out more. Verse 5 in chapter 3. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer... 
I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, before we go any further, I think it's good to ask the question, who cares? I mean, if you're a Bible scholar or kind of a history nut, you might care about this. But for the rest of us, why should we care about this intensely personal interaction between Paul and his church? Or maybe put it another way, God saw fit to put these verses, these details in the Bible. Why do they matter to us today? In part, Paul gives us a pattern for how a pastor and a church should interact with one another. It's very much a relationship of mutual love, mutual care, and mutual concern. So as the Christian church is getting started in the world, it's important both that its pastors and members know what to expect and how to interact. And it's important to know how we're to interact today. But I think we can press it just a little further. I think it provides a model for us, the way Paul interacts with the congregation here. I think it provides a model for us in all kinds of ministries, such as church leaders and members, Oh, I don't know, New City Kids teachers and the kids in the classroom. Even parents and children. And each one of you to one another. We, we have a model for these kind of discipleship or development relationships that take place within the context of the church. We have a model for doing one aspect of life together as God's people in the church. And so I want to look at this model in two sections. It's there in the title. I want to look at Paul's longing for the church, and I want to look at the love that Paul wants them to express to one another, longing and love, from a good pastor to a people he really loves, like a parent loves a child. Three longings that Paul brings out in this section that he expresses for this church. He longs to be with them. He Longs for them to thrive and he longs for them to grow. Well, first he longs to be with them. This isn't just a now in the moment thing. He's wanted to be with them ever since he had to suddenly leave. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, We endeavored all the more eagerly with great desire after I left to see you face to face. Again, in the next verse, verse 18, we wanted to come to you. And then to further emphasize, it's not just we, but I, Paul, again and again. Ah, okay, we get it, a little excessive. But Paul starts off this section in verse 17 by saying that he was torn away from the church. To the original readers, they would hear Paul's description of his separation, the words that he used to describe that, that gets translated torn away. And they'd realize that what he's talking about is he's talking about a feeling similar to an unwelcome separation of parent and child. So if you've got kids, or you are kids, what would it be like if you were unexpectedly, suddenly, without any control on your own, separated? That's the longing that Paul has to get back to the church. That's why that longing doesn't seem super excessive. And it isn't just a past feeling. I mean, he wants to be with them. In 3.10, he writes, um, As we pray more earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. What is he doing? He's saying, we've wanted to come to you again. Satan has hindered our coming to you again. So I'm praying night and day 
that God would provide a way that he would hinder Satan's work and allow me personally to get with you. And we get this, right? I mean, letters are cool, texts are fun, phone calls, virtual meetings, but they're only substitutes for, not a replacement for face-to-face interaction. Paul knows this. It's why he it's why he spent his life praying, working, longing to get literal face time with each and every church he was part of. And it came at a great it cost to himself, a cost which sometimes felt like a duck attack. And then for Paul, it sometimes felt like he was getting mauled by a bear. But it was worth it, Paul said. For pastoral love is best expressed face to face. Ministry is best done face-to-face. It's no wonder that Satan hindered Paul's attempts to get back to Thessalonica. For when Paul was with them, he would spend himself like an overly generous father for his kids, giving everything he had to help them thrive. So he longs to be with them, and he also longs that they thrive. He knows that they're continuing to suffer, suffer affliction, as he says there at the beginning of chapter 3. And he knows that wave after wave of continual suffering can shake your faith. He has no way of knowing how they're doing. And the not knowing, Paul says, is too much for him to bear. So he sends his trusted protege, Timothy, to Thessalonica to encourage the church there to be resilient in the midst of suffering provide them context and comfort for their current affliction and and help them grow in this relatively new relationship with Jesus. Timothy goes and then he's to return to Paul and give him a full report. Paul so wants them to thrive, even in the midst of this affliction. It's almost like, and he says it in other letters and he hints at it here, that, that his concern for them is so great that it's actually a form of suffering for him. He's so overwhelmed with anxiety. This this pastoral love spills into this parental love, spills into anxiety. And some of you who are parents know what that can be like sometimes, where the anxiety you feel for your kids sometimes even feels like a bit of suffering. It's part of what it means to care for those under your care. Again, it's, it's part of what it means to be a good parent. So he longs to know what's going on. And in 2.17, he says, you know, we're away for you in person, but not in heart. Like a loving parent, he's always concerned to, to some degree about church or his kids. Again, it's part of what it means to be a parent. It's part of what it means to suffer as a parent. So to cost to himself, Paul sends Timothy. Timothy returns with a good report. Chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as we long to see you, Paul's encouraged by that report. Well, actually, to say he's encouraged is a bit of an understatement. Paul literally says that through that report, Timothy evangelized him. And in that evangelism, Paul says, Timothy gave him a new lease on life. In fact, Paul seems to say later in verse 8 that his life and thriving, or his life and thriving, are bound up in their life and thriving. Look at verse 8. It says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
he's a good pastor. He finds joy in their joy. He finds success in their success. He thrives as they thrive. And he, and he makes this clear earlier in, the, in chapter 2 where he calls the church his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting before Christ Jesus. And he caps it all off by writing in chapter 2, verse 20, you are our glory and joy. In other words, you are the reason we rejoice now and will glory when Christ Jesus returns. You can hear the parental pride in Paul's words. Like a parent on the sidelines when the child makes the game-winning goal. That's my kid. But I think there's actually one more reason that Paul longs for them to thrive. Remember he says they are his hope. He can't stand not knowing how they're doing. The report that they're still committed to Jesus and standing strong in the face of much affliction, while Paul likens it again to the good news of the gospel that gives him new life. Chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Again, for now we live. Once I heard the report, now I live if you are standing fast in the Lord. They're thriving, Paul is saying. This is, this is pretty amazing. They're thriving in their faith as an encouragement to Paul's own faith. The story that Timothy shared bolsters Paul's faith, bolsters Paul's faith. When he sees or hears them thriving in the face of affliction, Paul knows that in the face of his own affliction, he will thrive too. Their faith encourages and strengthens his own faith. Again, to, to be a pastor is to risk being nibbled to death by ducks. It can feel like a never-ending series of seamlessly harmful, harmless bites. And then one day you look down and you're like, oh, look, there's my arm on the ground. Over the last couple of years, it's been very common for pastors to ask me questions like, is it worth it? Or how do you know that it's worth it? It's not unlike the fear that Paul expresses in chapter 3, verse 5. The fear that all the hard work he did in Thessalonica will be in vain. And it's so interesting that the stories of their faith are the things that encourage Paul's faith. The stories of their faith are the things that, that remind Paul that, yeah, it's all worth it. The stories of their faith are the things that remind Paul that, yeah, he's going to make it too. And the same is true for you and your leaders. Seeing and hearing of the ways you are thriving is good for their soul. It kind of makes the duck bites worth it. Even when it feels like they've lost an arm. It encourages their faith and helps them fight doubt. For as they see God at work in you, they rejoice. And in a way, it helps them, it helps make it easier for them to, to see the ways that God is at work in them. So let me encourage you, share those stories. 
As you see ways that God's in work in your life, in your family, in your community group, in the, in the ways that you're volunteering in the church, in your neighborhood, with your neighbors, share those stories with them and with one another. Even the ones that seem basic and simple because they do wonders for everyone. Even this morning, I was walking out of the hotel and my mind's in the cloud thinking about what exactly am I going to say to this church And I get this text, and it pops up on my phone. I thought, how could this guy be so rude as to interrupt me on a Sunday morning as I'm going off to do important things? I look at the text, and it's just this. Hey, I think God wanted me to tell you that what you preached 10 years ago lodged in my heart, and I'm still drawing benefit from it this morning. What do you think that does for me as I get in my car and head here and stand up in the pulpit? It does my soul good. Paul longs to be with them. He longs for them to thrive. And then he also longs for their continued growth. Verse 10, chapter 3. So we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. If you've read any of Paul's other letters, one thing is clear. He is a man that is completely taken with Jesus. He finds great joy in knowing Jesus. In his letter to the church in Philippi, he lists all of his accomplishments and all of his, all of his pedigree. It would make today what would be a quite envious LinkedIn page. And then he's lastly laying it all out. He says, whatever benefit I have from that, I consider nothing compared to the worth of knowing Jesus and striving to know him more and more. And Paul wants the church in Thessalonica to experience what he has. He wants them to know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus more and more, of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus. He wants them to kind of have, have the kind of relationship with Jesus that, that fosters resilience even when afflicted and overflows with love. So he prays that he gets to see them again and tell them about his friend Jesus. And while he's waiting for that in the interim, he prays, chapter 3, verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul loves this church deeply. And he wants the absolute best for them. So he asks God to make them increase and abound in love. And that gets us from his longing to, his, to the love that he wants to see find expression in the way that they live. He wants to see them have a love for God, a love for one another, those in the church, and a love for everyone, those outside the church. First, a love for God. God he, Paul asked God to establish their hearts blameless in holiness so that may, so they may, in a sense, be counted as God's saints when Jesus returns. That's something only God can do. I, I think it was the Christian mystic Thomas Merton who said that a saint isn't someone who is good, but someone who experienced the goodness of God. And, and that goodness and love comes to us as it came to Paul and the Thessalonians and every believer in Jesus. It was a message that Paul preached when he started the church. Christ died for sinners like you and me. We've disobeyed God by what we've done and haven't done. And the penalty for that sin is death. And 
eternal separation from a God who's perfect and holy and without sin. But out of love, God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life in our place, to die a sinner's death in our place, that if we look to him for the forgiveness of our sins, out of love for us, God will treat us as Jesus deserved to be treated. Because he treated Jesus as we deserve to be treated. Jesus' life for ours, Jesus died so we can truly live. And marked by love, we're set apart. God no longer calls us sinners, he calls us saints. It's both a name we have and one that we continue to, in a sense, progress towards. That's what Paul is after. He wants God to continue to help those in this church become more and more holy, more and more obedient to God, more and more like Jesus. And that process, he knows, is motivated by love. As their love for God increases, they find that that love finds expression in obeying him. Not perfectly. We are, as author Brennan Manning put it, a bundle of paradoxes. Belief and doubt, love and hate, and angel with an incredible propensity for beer. Manning continues, my deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. An ever-increasing understanding and experience of that undeserved but incredible love is this. A love for God who loves you like that and a desire to become with, like him. And all of that, again, is tied up in love. A love from God we've done nothing to earn or deserve. A love for God expressed in obedience. A love from God and for God that overflows for love with love for those in the church and love for those outside of the church. It's interesting, the Greek, the, the Greek word that Paul uses, just stay with me here. The Greek word that Paul uses for love there is agape. And until the New Testament church it wasn't a word that was very commonly used in the Greek world, in the Greco-Roman world for love. A New Testament scholar explains it like this. He says, perhaps a good way of, of grasping the new idea of love the Christians had is to contrast this word agape with the idea of eros, a word more commonly used for love in that day. He says, eros has two principal characteristics. It's a love of the worthy and a love that desires to possess. Agape, the word Paul uses for love here, is in contrast to both points. It's not a love of the worthy and it's not a love that desires to possess. On the contrary, it's a love given quite irrespective of merit and a love that seeks to give. Paul and his fellow believers got that idea for that agape love from Jesus himself, right? I mean, Jesus' death for sinners like you and me is not a death for the worthy. It's not a love that seeks to take. It's quite the opposite. It's a self-giving love for the unworthy. That kind of love is the core of who God is. It's the natural way that he loves. And if you're a believer in Jesus, that's how he's always loved you and how he always will love you. To receive that love is to be 
transformed by it. And one way you know that you've received that love is if you love others in that way, those around the church and those outside the church. And, and so Paul prays for the church that, that that will be true, again, in two ways. That the love they've received from Christ will be evident to those in the church and outside the church. And, and, and he wants that to be true then for two reasons. One, that the only way to live in love this way is through God's help. So he prays for it. And two, if we do live in love like God designed us to live, we will become a living example of what Jesus is like. About a month ago, my wife and I were vacationing in Chicago. We walked after dropping our daughter off at school, went to Chicago for a couple days, walking the streets, in and out of stores, and we come across my daughter's favorite perfume. It's tough to find, so I thought, oh, we'll grab a bottle, throw it in my suitcase, and next time we're in Oxford, we'll, we'll give it to her. The next day, we checked into our hotel, and I changed and headed out to dinner. As I'm walking out of the room, she says, it smells like Hannah's in here. It's a strange thing to say because Hannah was about six hours away in Oxford. You're right, I said, but I, I, I get it too, but I can't figure out why. Well, eventually we discovered that the perfume bottle had leaked over everything in my suitcase. It had so permeated what was in my bag that everything smelled all of my clothes, including my belt, which is the longest to get out, smelled like my daughter. I didn't have time to wash the clothes, so we had it out. Me, clearly me, but carrying with me, in a sense, the aroma of my daughter. When we live in love like Paul prayed the church would, when the life and love of Christ permeates the core of who you are, to use another Pauline phrase, you become the very aroma of Christ. You are you, and you show people who Jesus is. That's the way Paul lived and loved when he was with them. It's the way he prays they will continue to love and live in Thessalonica. It's the way we who are believers in Jesus are to live and love in the church and in our various communities. So tell people about Jesus with your words and show forth the beauty and the truth of Christ in the way that you live and love. And do it authentically because you've been saturated with Jesus' love. Again, that the Thessalonian church was living and loving this way was a tremendous encouragement to Paul. It's what he longed for them. Is what he continued to pray for them. That they're, they're, and again, their life and in, their life and love encouraged Paul in his faith, and it reminded him that the labor, the hard, wearisome toll required to plant and pastor a church, and all the other ministry they did throughout his lifetime, it reminded Paul that his labor was not in vain. I mean, the word that Paul uses for labor there in chapter three, verse five, it's a bit of a technical term for the work of ministry. It's pastoral work. It's church planting. It's the work of self-giving love expressed in care for others. There's no church, no ministry without this kind of work that often involves long days and sleepless nights. Worry and work, suffering for others and suffering from others. It's the kind of work that's often marked by costly endurance and obedience. It's the work your pastors do, your elders do, your deacons do. It's the work staff and volunteers do to make Sunday happen and the other church events. It's what's taking place right now in New City Kids. It's, it's the time you put into leading community group. It's the work you do to love and care for your neighbors and your neighborhoods. It's the work of taking the gospel message 
to your neighbors and throughout the world. It's what you're doing to make room for others. It's what you are doing in classrooms, offices, coffee shops, soccer field. It's the work you do to raise your kids. Pastoral love is parental love. And though it's done in love and faith, sometimes we feel like Paul does that our work can be in vain. But part of what makes it so wearisome is we're more familiar often with the costs and the results. One of the ways that the Bible says the work of ministry can be described, it's like planting seeds. You prepare the ground, you plant, you water, watch, and if you aren't at the garden every day, you wonder if anything's growing, and if you are at the garden every day, you wonder if anything's growing. Because part of what makes gardening so hard is you're never really sure that what you're planted will grow. The only way to know it's growing requires you to dig up the seed before it grows, which of course will kill the growth. You know the cost, you long and pray for the results. Or even after you see some results, you wonder if it's all worth it. You may fear that your labor is in vain. So as we close, let me briefly give you three ways you can encourage one another in the work of ministry and encourage one another that the labor is not in vain. One, live in love like Jesus. Join Paul in his prayer for the church. Ask God to increase and abound your, your love for those in the church and those outside the church. And join Paul in his prayer that love for God will find expression in an ever-increasing obedience of God. Pray that you individually as a church would look more and more like what Jesus said you already are, a saint. Two, become a community of storytellers. Remember how Timothy's report encouraged Paul, it evangelized him, it was the good news of God's work that, that, that gave him a new lease on life? The stories we tell can do the same for others. So where do you see evidence of God's work in your life? Where do you see evidence of God's work in, in others' life? Look for evidence and evangelize others with stories of big things and stories of small things. The kind of stories that encourage your faith and others' faith. For they're both reminders that God is at work in the world and in his people. Live in love like Jesus. Become a community of storytellers. And third, do this all with an eye firmly fixed on eternity. Twice in this section, Paul makes reference to Jesus' return, which he's going to detail more in the letter, later in the letter. The promised return of Jesus, he mentions, when Jesus is going to make all the work that we've done in his name perfect and permanent. The return of Jesus, when he'll reward us for the work that we've done in his name uh, the return of Jesus when evil will be forever eradicated and everything will work in the world like it's supposed to. We'll be made perfect like our Savior. We'll live eternally in perfect peace with Jesus and every other person he saved. When the suffering and toil that we experience now in doing the work that God has called us to do will seem like nothing compared to the glories of Jesus that we're experiencing. A look to eternity with an eye of faith reminds us of our wearisome, reminds us that our wearisome labor is not done in vain. It encourages wearisome labor because we know we're working with God towards a certain promised goal. Look, if Jesus is returning, we're guaranteed that the worst news is never the last news. So no matter the lack of information or seemingly certain defeat, labor done in Jesus' name is never in vain. And it also means if Jesus is coming back that when he does, he's going to share everything he has with us. So for those who've received and are promised that kind of generosity, 
we can live and love the way that Paul prays the church will. We're free to disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. So love as Christ loves you. Love as Christ lives. Live as Christ lives for you. Work as Christ works for you. Give as Christ has given to you. All the while, be diligent to share the ways you see that happening in yourself and others. And as you do, celebrate with others, even those that have no regard for God. And tell them similar stories. Julian ruled in the 4th century uh, as Roman emperor. He's known as Julian the Apostate because he was radically opposed to Christianity and he rejected it. And despite Julian's best efforts, Christianity grew throughout the Roman world, even under his rule. In a letter to one of his pagan priests, he explained why he thought this was happening. He wrote, we ought to be ashamed. Not a beggar is to be found among the Jews and those godless Galileans, that's Christians, feed not only their own people, but ours as well. Whereas our people receive no assistance from us whatsoever. May we be so permeated with Jesus' love that even those who deny it can't ignore it. And as they see it, may they, like we were, be transformed by it. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us well. Thank you for calling us to ourselves, to yourself, and to service in this church. Would you continue to help this church grow in love? For you, for one another, and for the world outside. It's your name that we ask these things. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.